listening to the Women's Online Wellness Podcast, a podcast all about your health and wellness issues that affect you every day. We want to educate, entertain, and maybe make you giggle a little along the way. No annoying statistics or jargon here, just information you can use every day to be healthier, happier, and less boring. All right, here's your host, OBGYN Dr. Ron Eaker. everybody welcome to another thirsty thursday it's great to see you it's great to be with you again tonight tonight we want to do something a little bit different we wanted to do just an old-fashioned question and answer we don't get a chance to do that very often and gee how often do you have a chance to just uh, ask questions and and try to um, try to get some answers in in a short period of time so we're glad to have you here tonight so again if you're watching this live and you have a question or a comment I can see the little thing down here, so I'll be, I'll be watching that as we go along. I've had a, several questions that people have submitted, so I'm going to kind of kick things off by answering those. But if you have a question or a concern or anything that I can help with, I'm not going to decrease any confidentiality, so I won't tell anything. Of, but uh, my guess is, is most of the time, if you have a question, there's probably about 150 other folks out there that have questions too. So we'll start out by a question that Alice wrote in about. It says, if I go on hormones, do I have to stay on them forever? And that's a really common question. I get that a lot. Whoops, almost knocked the camera down. And you'll probably see my dogs in the background, so just hopefully they won't come up and visit. Uh, but anyway, getting back to where we were. If I've started on hormones, do I always have to be on hormones? That's a very common question. That, and the short answer is no. And it goes back to looking at the reasons as to why you're taking the hormones. There's only one reason in this day and time to take the hormones, and that's for symptom control. Now, there's this interesting uh, concept that I've raised before called the hormone window, or the estrogen window, that's about this 45 to 62-year-old age range, where we're now seeing that women who start, exclamation, start, hormones during that time frame actually may get some beneficial effects on decreasing senile dementia and decreased cardiac problems. But again, the vast majority of people starting on hormones need to start on them for symptom relief. So to answer that question, you need to stay on the hormones as long as you need relief of the symptoms. Now that raises the next question. Well, how long are these crazy symptoms going to last? You idiot. I mean, answer the question. Well, the, the answer is it's varied. It depends on each individual. Everybody is so different. The most common symptom, for example, hot flashes. Almost 80% of women will experience hot flashes sometime in this perimenopause, menopause time frame. And depending on the intensity and the severity, that's what dictates whether or not hormones or other options, and again, we won't spend a lot of time on that. I've spent a lot of time in some of the other videos talking about different options that are not hormonal, but if the hot flashes exist, almost 60% of women in their 60s still have hot flashes. So if that's the main reason why you're taking them, indeed, it might be worthwhile that you have to continue those until that time frame. Uh, I do get nervous when I see people in their 70s and 80s and 90s still taking hormones and there's still a few around. In general, that shouldn't happen because these are not meant to be lifelong medications. These are meant to be taken for a period of time because the vast majority of symptoms only occur around the time of the, uh, the menopause when you stop periods. That's when the most symptoms occur, the most bothersome symptoms. 
the average age in this country for people being on hormones is about three, three and a half years. But again, it's incredibly individualized. Each person is different. Each person you have to take into consideration the degree of, of problems that they're having, why they're having them. So the quick answer is no, you don't have to be on them for life. Generally, we want you to be on for the least amount of time that you need to be for whatever benefits you're getting from them. And quite honestly, that raises another question. Well, when do I know if it's time to come off? Well, you taper off of them. You come off of them slowly and you see how you feel and you see if any other symptoms arise. And if they don't, probably that's a point where you can be off of them without any deleterious side effects. Again, it goes back to the reason as to why you're taking them. So, Alice, I hope that answered your question. Uh, Debbie asks, and this is kind of a, a link to this, Debbie asks, how long does menopause last? Well, again, it goes back to the definition. The definition of menopause is simply stopping the periods. And, you know, you don't know when that happens, stopping the periods for, about, for a year. You don't know when that happens until retrospect. You know, you go by six months and then nothing's happened, seven months, eight months, well, is it going to happen? And then you have a period. Well, you're not technically in menopause at that point. So, you know, you, you've got to uh, understand the definition is going a full year without uh, having a um, without having a cycle. Uh, so technically that menopause is literally just a point in time where before that you were having cycles and after that you weren't. What people are really asking when they ask that question is, how long will the symptoms last? Because who cares if the periods go away? I don't know anybody yet that I've run across that said, gee, I really would love to have those periods back again. I really miss those things. No, it's missing, the, it's stopping the periods is the end of menopause, but it's all about the symptoms. If you don't have any symptoms, then who cares how long it lasts? Because it's not affecting you. It just means you can't get pregnant. So it's, it, the, the menopause itself is, is just that point in time. So what you're really asking is how long are the symptoms going on? And again, I'll go back to my default answer, because it's the truth. I know it's boring, I'm sorry, but it's the truth. It's individualized. Everybody's very different. And that's why you can't cookbook any of this kind of stuff. You can't just one size fits all, because everybody's different. So that's, that's the short answer to that. Uh, Justine asks, what is the best diet? Well, Justine, Let's start with that word. We're not even going to use that word because when you use the word diet, well, first of all, why would you use? Why would you do something that starts out D-I-E? I mean, that should tell you something right there, right? So, in our weight loss program, we don't even use the word diet because that implies that it's something you're going on and something you're going off. And when we start talking about maintaining weight and being healthy, we're talking about lifestyle. We're talking about something that. We want you never to go off. We want this to be a regular pattern of eating. So I tell folks in our weight loss program, I think it applies to everybody, don't think of yourself as being somebody on a diet. Think of yourself as someone who eats healthy, someone who is behaving healthy. You know those WWJD bracelets? Well, I, I, you ought to put on the other hand, uh, WWHD or WWHPD. What would a healthy person do? And I think that would be the mind frame you need to get yourself in. So when we talk about diets, probably what she was asking is not, is there one diet like Sugar Busters or Atkins is one better than the other. She was probably asking, what's a healthy diet? Well, let me break this down for you real simple. I'm going to consolidate 50 years of nutrition in one sentence. You want to eat balanced, 
There's no magic food, you know, algae. Nah, no magic food. There's no one horrible, yeah, Twinkies, that's a horrible food, but you really want to eat balanced, low sugar. I mean, sugar really, I mean, if you really come down to it, I really think sugar should be considered a toxin. There's some people who go as far as saying it's a carcinogen because we know that people who are overweight that consume way too much sugar actually have higher rates of cancer. But I'm not going to go that far, uh, but it's, it's not good for you. So balanced, low sugar, low trans fats, and you all know what those things are, the things in margarine, processed foods, uh, and more fiber. People don't eat enough fiber. Fiber is great. It keeps you regular, and if your bowels are happy, your brain's happy. I promise you. So balance, low sugar, low fat, high fiber, and drink plenty of fluid. So that's, that's the healthiest diet if you're using that term just to describe how to eat. Eat, eat mostly plants, but meat's fine uh, in moderation. Eat, so, eat things that are as close to how they come out of the ground or as close to, to their natural state as they can be. The more processed something is, the more nutrient-free it becomes. So when it comes to how to eat, that's the best way to eat. Now, as far as comparing the diets, there's a lot of studies out there looking at, okay, what are you going to lose weight more with Atkins, with uh, Sugar Busters, with Protein Power, with South Beach, with Keto, with Paleo, with the marshmallow diet, with the Little Debbie diet. I don't know. When they compare these things, virtually across the board, people who are sticking to these diets all lose weight. And they all lose weight for one reason, because they're all low calorie. That's why they lose weight. Now, the real question to ask is, A, what are they losing? Are they losing muscle? Are they losing fluid? Are they losing body fat? And B, can they sustain it and is it healthy long term? Because if you just lose it quickly based on some dietary approach, 98% of the time it's going to come back on because you're not doing it correctly and it's not becoming a lifestyle. So I'm not a big fan of any particular named diet, generally because most of it's gimmick and most of it's just marketing, most of it's selling books and selling programs and selling TV ads. I think if you adopt just a basically healthy lifestyle, and yes, I prefer a low-carb approach because, as I mentioned before, I think the sugar is killer. So uh, balanced, low-carb, low-fat, uh, high-fiber, lots of fluid, and as natural to the ground as possible. So hopefully that answers that for you, Justine. Let me look up here and see if there's been any questions. Uh, hey, Judy. Hey, Catherine. Uh, thank you, Laura. She likes my yard. Yeah, I spend hours, hours back there. Don't believe it. Not a handyman, not my gift. I have other strengths. Working in the yard ain't one of them. I decided one of the main reasons I wanted to go into medicine was to be able to have a comfortable living so I could afford to pay for somebody to take care of my yard. So, but thank you for the compliment. I, pure, I appreciate that. Um, hey, Yolanda, Lori, we appreciate that. Tamara, Rosa, uh, let's see. Uh, Laura, thank you for the talking about the uh, weight loss program and how it's worked for her. Uh, and that's because she's working hard at it. And that's the other thing. There's no magic. I mean, there's no secret formula. There's no magic. There's no, no special pill when it comes to weight loss. In fact, one of the reasons I went back and got board certified in bariatric medicine, which is weight loss medicine. I mean, let me tell you, at, at, at 
58 years old when I went back and got that certification. That was not easy. I mean, there's no question that as we get older, our neurons are just not synapsing like they were back in their 20s when we were trying to memorize all this stuff. So I, I got I got I really feel for people who are going back and getting re-educated. I really understood how difficult that was because, you know, I would spend a lot of time going over stuff that 25 years ago it would it would click like that. But anyway, I went back and got board certified in bariatrics because I wanted to be able to offer a variety of things. I didn't want to just do some little turnkey. Oh, you've got to follow this program because the reality is with weight management and with diet in general. It's not about a certain program. Nobody has, nobody has a, a complete uh, monopoly on what's good and what's healthy. If they did, everybody would be doing it. It's like if, something, if some over-the-counter product really worked with weight loss, everybody and their sister would be doing it. Well, the reason they're not is because it doesn't. There are some things that are helpful. There are things that are adjuncts. We In our program, we use 5-HTP, 5-hydroxytryptophan, because there are some good studies that show it does help with carb cravings. Is it a magic pill? Absolutely not. Is it going to do it by itself? Of course not. And that goes for anything like that. So there is no magic solution. There is no one-size-fits-all. That's why I went back and got certified so that I would be able to expand what we were doing initially and offer that individualization to people. Offer that because that's what medicine is all about is individualizing the, the needs of the patient. We like to mold our program to the person instead of the person to the program. And I, I don't mean to, I'm, I'm not, I didn't mean to come on here and hype our weight loss program, but I just think it, it's important for folks to understand when they ask questions about, you know, where, where my belief system is and how, it, quite honestly, we don't hold any magic pill or solution. We're there to provide education, support, motivation, accountability, the knowledge. I mean, that's the other thing. My gosh. How many of you have Googled weight loss or, or menopause or anything like that in the past? And you'll probably get 1,500 on, on the first page alone. I mean, it's nuts, the amount of information. We don't have, there's no problem with information. You've got plenty of information about everything. I mean, there's nothing that, that makes me a little crazy than to have somebody come into the office and they bring a stack of papers like this as they ran off the Internet. They went on docmd.com or, or med, who knows, all these crazy sites. And they decided because they had this rash that now they've got pancreatic cancer. And, and I know you've all had that experience. We've all gone on there and we put in our symptoms and it comes up and says, well, you either have fatigue or lupus or ear cancer or you're constipated. And, you know, then that really is very helpful. There's no lack of information out there. What there is a lack of is curated information, trustworthy information. Unfortunately, I guarantee you, if you go on the internet and you, let's say you, you're interested in a particular herb, you're looking for an omega-3 fatty acid supplement or something like that, and you go on there and you Google that, the first five pages you're going to get are either going to be ads or they're going to be information that is that is masquerading as an ad. They're selling something. So you just, you've got to be a critical consumer when it comes to any of this information. So getting back to my original point, there is gobs, there's more information. That's the biggest problem now is too much information. And we all get that analysis paralysis where we can't even make choices and decisions because there's so much. I mean, that's one of the things we started doing in our weight loss program is, is actually trying to uh, minimize choices for folks because there's so much to choose from it confuses people and that that's what happens when whenever you go and you you 
go on the internet and Google this stuff. I'm all for people making smart decisions and for doing their research and understanding, but you've got to be able to get to a point where you can have some trust and you can have some understanding that is scientifically valid and meaningful for you and applicable to you. So anyway, that, that, that kind of went off on a tangent about the best diet there, Justine, but hopefully that answers your question. I got a bunch more questions on CBD oil. I mean, that is really, really becoming a very popular topic, and we're going to see more and more about that as the research uh, continues. And we are starting to see a lot of scientific um, interest in this area, mainly because there's a big economic interest in this area. It has skyrocketed in sales of CBD in the last year. I did an entire video on CBD oil. So if you go to the top of the, the screen and click on albums, then the screen with the videos comes up and you click on videos and then you kind of look down. I'm trying to figure out how to label those videos so you don't, because right now they're not labeled, so it's hard to tell what each video is about. If anybody knows how to do that, message me and tell me because I'm a dork when it comes to some of this stuff. So if you know how to put the label on those little videos so people can look at those and know, save me about 12 hours of research and just message me and let me know how to do that. But anyway, if you'll go on there and go down the videos, there's one that's sideways. <laughs> it's pretty easy to see. I'm, I'm actually in there sideways because I had to film that in the office and the way the camera was tilted. That's the one on CBD oil. So a, a whole 30, 45 minutes just on that. Uh, just in a nutshell, the science is pretty good that it may be helpful in chronic pain, anxiety, and sleep disorders. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to help everybody who has this issue. It doesn't mean that it's uh, going to be effective for all of those. But that's where the science is pointing right now with the CBD. Like any herbal supplement, and I'm going to say this a thousand times, and you're probably sick of hearing it, but I'm going to say it 10,000 more times because it's so true. You've got to be so careful about the source. You've got to be careful about where it comes from, the quality, and the dosage. When you talk about herbal products, those are the big stumbling blocks. These are not FDA regulated. These are basically left up to the uh, the whims of the manufacturer, and we all know how great that can be. I mean, this this is it's kind of the wild west when it comes to who's looking out after you for quality. So you've got to do your research. You've got to investigate the particular company, find out where they're sourcing their stuff. And believe me, if if they're doing the right stuff, they're going to tell you about it on their website because it's a big distinguishing. Thing. It's, a, it's a big promotional thing for them, so they're going to be distinguishing that, so it should be easy to find that information. You know, do they have the right quality control? Are they being inspected by independent inspectors? Have they had their products tested appropriately? A, a tremendous number of things that are available out there to make sure to distinguish a quality manufacturer from some fly-by-night garb, which still it can show up on the shelves. So you've got to have a quality product, it's got to be sourced appropriately. And, and just a, a touch a little bit about CBD because there's a little bit of misunderstanding. People associate it with marijuana, understandably so, because it comes from the species of plant called cannabis. But many of you have heard that name. 
Well, cannabis is just the umbrella species. Under that, you get marijuana and you get hemp. Those are not the same things. They do contain the cannabinoids, which is the, some of the active ingredients in the CBD oil. That's where it gets its name, cannabinoid. And the one that's in the marijuana, the tetrahydrocannabinoid, THC, many of you heard about, that's the one that makes you loopy and wants to eat Fritos all day long. That's not in CBD oil. CBD oil should have less than 0.5% or less, is a number that, that they restrict so that it's not psychoactive, it's not, it, it's not have any effect like marijuana does, but the cannabinoid stimulates a whole number of receptors in the body called the endocannabinoid system. It's a new, a relatively newly discovered system in our body that has to do with chronic pain and anxiety and stress and sleep, some really interesting stuff. So if, if you have an interest in CBD oil, I would recommend, especially if you have chronic pain, problem sleeping or anxiety okay I just named about 98 percent of the population I get it I understand but if you're having that issue go look at that video and that'll give you a place to start and then do your homework and then decide because I promise you you don't want to go out and waste your I mean this stuff ain't cheap folks I was looking at a pharmacy the other day and they were selling these small bottles for $9,500, so it's not cheap. So you don't want to just go in and say, well, I'll take that one. And that also tells me if you find a bottle that's 10 bucks, it's probably cat pee. So you've got to be careful. You've got to do your homework and make sure that it's appropriate for you. So go, go look at that video. It's going to give you a lot more information about CBD. We're going to get a lot more information in the future about that because it's very popular and we are seeing some positive results. All right, I'm going to look up here on the screen for a second and see if there's any other questions here. Um, uh, let's see. Someone writes in uh, about they had an ablation in December and hasn't had a period since. She's got a long question here. I'll press see more and see if, well, won't come up. So, the, I, probably what I, I suspect she's asking is that she had an ablation, hasn't had a period, so does that mean she's in menopause? Well, no. And let me explain. Some of you may be familiar with things like the Novasure ablation. That's where we have a little device that goes in and cauterizes the inside lining of the uterus. It's mainly for people who have really bad, heavy, clotty, painful periods. And it works wonderful. It is so awesome. It has probably cut the number of hysterectomies more than in half. I mean, it has dramatically changed the indications for that kind of surgery because it's, it's an outpatient. It takes literally 90 seconds to do, and about 88% of people get really satisfactory results. So if you have terrible cramping, terrible bleeding, and you don't want any more babies, it's a great tool. But what it does is it cauterizes the inside lining of the uterus. It does nothing to the ovaries. So thereby, the ovaries are continuing to function just like, you know, they just ignored Mr. Uterus. They've just said, I'm just going to still be pumping out my estrogen. And so by, by that definition, you cannot call someone menopausal simply because an ablation stopped their cycles. In that instance, the only way to really know if you are truly in the menopause state is a blood test to look at the functioning of the ovaries. 
that's a pretty simple thing and it can determine whether those ovaries are functional. If the ovaries are no longer functional, then yes, that's, that's how you can make that distinction. The same thing applies to people who've had hysterectomies, but they still have their ovaries. If you still have those ovaries and you're 25 and have a hysterectomy for big bad fibroids, but the ovaries are still there, well, chances are you're going to actually go through menopause pretty much at the time you normally would. The average age is 51. So it's, it's what's happening with the ovaries. The only reason we talk about the, the end of the periods is because that's the, the end organ manifestation of the ovaries function. And the ovaries are really the, the, the key. They're the, really the essential part of this whole picture. So anything that knocks them out, you know, if you have chemotherapy or radiation or have the ovaries taken out, once those are gone, then you're technically menopausal, regardless of what the cycles are doing. I mean, you can actually, there are rare instances where you can produce enough hormones to cause cycles even after the ovaries are gone, but ah, we're not going to go there. That's why I went to medical school, so I could learn that kind of stuff. So for, the, for most people, the ablation stops the cycles, but if your ovaries are still pumping out stuff, you're not menopausal. Hopefully that answered your question, Barbara. Thank you. Hey, Patty. Hey, Diane. Uh, Frida, thanks. Appreciate it. Charmaine, good to see you. <laughs> no, Catherine, you still have to come in. She asked if she, this would count as her. <laughs> Listen, Papa needs new shoes. You know, my, I've got a daughter getting married here. I've got to pay the bills. You still have to come to your visit. Sorry about that. Ah, there's always one in the crowd. Okay, Donna said, oh, this, this feeds right into this perfectly. Donna says, uh, when do I have to stop getting a pap smear? Well, thanks, Donna. I mean, that's just what I do for my living, right? I mean, come on, please. I'm going to cross you off my friend list. No, really, Donna, that's a great question. I get it every, every day. Uh, well, a lot of it depends on, on what we're looking for. You think about this. A pap smear obviously is looking for precancer changes in the cervix, also precancer cells vaginally. So that's something people don't think about a whole lot. They say, well, if I've had my uterus taken out with my cervix, do I still need a pap smear? Well, we can pick up hormonal changes. We can pick up infection. We can pick up precancerous changes in the vaginal tissue. So all these things happen more frequently as you get older. So you think about, well, why would I stop screening something that's actually occurring in a greater incidence? Now, there's a lot of debate about how frequently to do pap smears, how long to continue those, whether to do HPV testing with pap smears. Most of that information is based on what we call population studies, where they take these massive amounts of people, they look at all this data, they connect it with the economics of it, and they decide, is it economically worthwhile to be doing this procedure for this particular reason? And quite honestly, I, I have a little bit of issue with that because medicine is not about populations, it's about people. And yes, if, if I have to do 20 pap smears to find one precancer, am I being wasteful? Am I being costly to the system? Uh, we could argue that, but don't tell that one person. Don't tell that one person who had the precancers that we were able to treat in an office and save their uterus and allow them to continue to be childbearing. 
So, you know, I get the debate and I understand it and I respect those who are working in in government or, well, I was going to say I respect those that work in insurance, but I can't really say that. Sorry. Uh, but I, I get the, the debate and I understand why there's problems associated with that. But the bottom line is, and this is what I tell most individuals, I say, well, let's look at you. I'm not going to give you a carte blanche. Oh, everybody ought to have this in. Every ought to, everybody ought to do this. Let's look at you. Let's look at your history. Uh, have you had problems with PAPS in the past? What's your family history? What's your risk profile? Do you have any other risk factors? Uh, do you just hate coming to the gynecologist? Do I, did you happen to show up on a day I forgot my deodorant? All those things that might impact how frequently you want to come in. So we'll look at those and really make an individual decision about what is going to be in your best interest. I don't really care at that point what the health experts in Washington say or what somebody sitting in the ivory tower at Harvard says, I care more about what is going to impact you and how are you going to sleep at night and what is the the benefits and risks to you as an individual. So that's that's the answer that I give. It may not be the most politically correct and it may not fit in with the latest academic uh, papers, but you know, it's just, it's just the way I feel. I think that you ought to continue these screening tests as long as there's the potential that we could find something, find it early, and prevent it from ever being a major issue. Take it for what it's worth. All right, Joan asks, are there any particular supplements I should be taking? Well, I know <clears throat> for a fact that Joan's about 54, so... I, I assume that that's who she was implying. She was referring to. Well, quite honestly, I, there's not very many that I recommend on a regular basis. I do think for a lot of women in that age group, taking calcium and vitamin D are probably the two I would almost say across the board that you ought to take. Mainly because even if you have a good diet, and even if you don't have a lot of risk factors, we know that you start losing bone at an accelerated rate after, after, actually after about 35, but it accelerates even more after 50. So taking additional calcium, taking additional vitamin D, we're finding more and more people have vitamin D deficiencies. It's really surprising and it's, it, a lot of it has to do with the massive amount of sunscreen use today, which is great. It's wonderful, it's cut down melanoma and skin cancers. But it's also decreased vitamin D levels because most of the vitamin D in your system comes from sunshine hitting your skin and causing a chemical reaction that actually produces the vitamin D. So if you lose a lot of sunscreen, well, if you lose sunscreen or sunscreen, either one, it's going to prevent a lot of vitamin D formation. And it, uh, it, it can affect a lot of things. And believe it or not, it's not just bones. Vitamin D levels can affect concentration. It can affect energy level. Uh, it can affect some types of digestion, some types of nutrient absorption. So vitamin D is pretty important, much more important than we used to give it credit for. It was used to be kind of the stepchild of the vitamins, and but now it's gaining a lot more importance such that a lot of you going to your primary cares probably get vitamin D levels, which you never used to get because they've been coached on doing the vitamin D stuff. So calcium, vitamin D. People ask me all the time about a multivitamin. And, you know, if you've got a really trashy diet, you know, if you just if you wake up in the morning and, and you have a, a cigarette and a Coke and, you know, for lunch you, you have a little squirrel meat and for dinner you, a bowl of Cheerios, yeah, you probably ought to take a multivitamin. 
But uh, y'all say hi to my dog out there. See him walking by. Definitely tell this is truly live. Uh, but if, if you have a reasonably normal diet in this day and time, there's not a whole lot of benefit from taking a multivitamin. Uh, I do it though. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's one of those things like I feel like it might be a, a little insurance policy. Is it something I insist people do? No, but if, you, if it makes you sleep better and you feel better doing it, it's not going to do any harm unless you're, unless you're taking one of these big monster vitamins that get stuck in your throat and they have to take you to the ER and get it pulled out with the pliers or something like that. Other than that, you're probably fine. That's really about all the recommend. When I talk about using supplements and using vitamins and using herbs, I really target the individual symptom. For example, I don't think people ought to just blanketly take vitamin E. But if they're having problems with their hair, their skin, or their nails, yeah, vitamin E is a pretty good choice. Same with biotin. If they're having terrible hot flashes, yeah, taking vitamin E may be helpful. But just taking vitamin E for the sake of taking vitamin E or taking vitamin C for the sake of taking vitamin... No. Take it for particular symptom control. That's where I think you're getting your most bang for your buck. Otherwise, you probably got just real expensive urine. That's the bottom line. All right, let me, let me look up here. Uh, oh, hey, my wife is watching. Thank you, Susan. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see here. See if there's any other questions right now. Um, good, good. All right, another question I had is, Jan wants to know what's the uh, best treatment for PCOS. PCOS is a... Uh, stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome and many of you may be familiar with that PCOS has gained a lot of popularity just because of awareness people just had no idea what it was for the longest period of time uh, and it's kind of a misnomer you know, we think polycystic uh, ovarian syndrome well that means there's a bunch of cysts on the ovary well that's not the case really you can have pretty normal appearing ovaries so what is it basically it's a just a a conglomeration of symptoms that happens because someone doesn't ovulate regularly. Usually happens in women in ovulatory age, reproductive age range, you know, from 12 to, to 45. And it results from not ovulating regularly. When you don't ovulate regularly, it creates this hormonal mismatch. And that's what happens in the perimenopause too, for those of you who are in that age range. Uh, you're not ovulating regularly and it causes this estrogen, progesterone, testosterone mix-up that leads to a whole domino of symptoms. And PCOS is pretty much characterized by things like irregular cycles, weight gain, excess hair growth, acne, infertility. Uh, it really can be a very, very serious issue for a lot of young women. And the way it's addressed is really threefold. One is you try to identify the underlying cause. Why is someone not ovulating? Is their thyroid out of whack? Uh, do, they, do they have some other kind of endocrine problem? Are they totally stressed out to the max? Because we know that can do it. One of the most common issues we see with you moms who have young girls going off to college, if they're really stressed out about being away from home, they're gonna more than likely tell you that their cycles are gone all screwy. And it's, a lot of it can be the stress in that age group. Very, very common thing that we see. And luckily, it usually self-corrects. It corrects on its own, so it's not something that's ongoing. 
usually with PCOS to really get that spectrum of symptoms you have to have that kind of setup happening in your body for about six seven eight months or so uh, so it sets up this mismatch so we try to identify why if we can identify the reason why we correct that and then the dominoes fall and everything else falls into place but unfortunately about 65 70 percent of the time we don't have a clue we don't have any idea we can't identify any reason why somebody's not ovulating and when that happens then we have to take it to the next level and that's where we divide it off we said do you want to get pregnant or do you not want to get pregnant now you can imagine that's an interesting discussion sometimes if 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 mom's in the room but uh, that's a very important distinction because if you're trying to actively become pregnant we approach it one way we try to stimulate ovulation we try to uh, to, to make sure that you are ovulating not only to increase that fertility but that in turn will then improve the other symptoms because you correct the problem you get them ovulating but you don't want to do that just in general unless somebody's actively wanting to come pregnant because we use a medicine oftentimes called Clomid which makes you become more likely to become pregnant so if you're not actively wanting to do that you don't want to use that medication so what do you do if you say nah I don't want to get pregnant for you know seven or eight centuries then probably one of the most effective tools is using a low-dose birth control pill as a medication really whether you're sexually active or not we're not using it as a contraceptive we're using it as a medication and it's very effective at controlling the cycles it kind of suppresses the ovary lets them rest you know it sends them off to Cancun for a vacation for six months so they can get their act together so they can start ovulating like they're supposed to as long as they stay out of the bars and don't drink the liquor and they're all you know won't go into what will happen down there with that but the pill is very effective at controlling that and resetting that a lot of times people be on it for six months they'll come off of it and the cycles may be regular again but the other thing that the pill does is it blocks some of the action of testosterone. That's one of the bad guys in PCOS is they almost everybody has an elevation of testosterone. And we generally think of testosterone as a male hormone. You know, that's the, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger shooting up the testosterone, getting the big muscles and everything. Well, women produce testosterone too, but just not nearly at that level. But when they are not ovulating, it creates this environment in the ovaries where the cells uh, it's called lighting cells produce this excess testosterone and with that excess testosterone you start looking like me and you start getting the acne you get the weight gain all the bad things that go along with that so that's why a pill is very helpful because not only does it decrease the production of testosterone but it also increases the a protein that sucks up the testosterone it goes like Pac-Man through the bloodstream sucking up testosterone so it really helps for many young women to be on a low dose pill is an effective treatment. And then we've got some other things we can do. People, if, if they, you know, if they come in and they look like me, like a wolfman or something, there is some topical creams that we can do to get rid of that hair. There is another medicine that helps block the action of testosterone. If they don't want to use a pill, that's very effective at helping to reduce that effect. So that's a real effective tool for the PCOS. So that's, it's a common problem, especially we see it a lot in younger women, and it really creates an issue uh, especially in the area of weight gain because it's so frustrating and I just have a heart for these poor young women who are doing the right stuff but their metabolism and their body chemistry is so messed up from the PCOS that it's just no matter what they do and they get so frustrated and you just can imagine the 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 anxiety that creates and all the 
physiological and psychological impact. So it's, it's really important to identify that in young women to try to head off any of those issues before they really create further problems. I really, really can't say that enough. And it's, it's really important to uh, be aware of that if that's someone you know or, or someone you're uh, with. Right, I got a question here. Uh, uh, Buffy asking about vitamin D and calcium and how much. Generally, I'd say about five to 600 milligrams of calcium a day. You, you really can't absorb much more than that. I hear a lot of people taking 1,200 milligrams, and if you take 1,200 milligrams all at once, you're probably not gonna be able to absorb very much of that. So taking about, about five to 600 milligrams, generally in someone who has a regular good diet, that's gonna be plenty. Uh, with the vitamin D, about four to 600 milligrams a day is usually adequate. Uh, even if, if you're getting plenty of sun exposure, you might wanna just check a vitamin D level to see where you're at. We really jack that up to even 1,000 to 5,000 units if you're very deficient. So how much you actually use depends on what kind of situation you're in. But just as a, if you're just taking something on a regular basis, I just tell folks, you know, get them something like Oscal-D or Caltrate-D that has both the calcium and D together and just take one of those a day. And that should be enough for the average person to provide the benefits. Um, Terry asked uh, if, uh, if there's an abnormal mammogram and they recommend doing an ultrasound, um, will they ever just recommend getting a regular ultrasound instead of mammograms to avoid getting that radiation every year? Great question, Terry. Thank you very much for that. Uh, and my dogs hear something in the backyard, so just ignore them. Uh, it's not uncommon in people who have very fibrocystic breast you know the breasts are basically just fatty glands and and glands and fatty tissue and those glands respond to hormones and a lot of times will form cysts and they can be very tender well a lot of times on mammogram they'll see the shadow of this cyst and they they don't really know it's a cyst they know it's something there and they can't really say what it is so that's when normally we'll order a a sonogram because 99 percent of the time they're looking at a very specific area they say oh in the left breast, in the left upper quadrant, there's this area, and we'd like to get a sonogram to, or an ultrasound to look at that. And the purpose is a sonogram can differentiate between something that's solid and something that's cystic. If something's solid, it raises a little bit more anxiety. Most of the time, it's still a benign, what we call a fibroadenoma, but there's still that chance that it could be a precancerous or cancerous lesion if it's solid. Now, if it's cystic, ah, everything's cool. Those don't turn into cancers. If it's a cystic area and there's no evidence of any abnormalities within it, that's why you do the sonogram. Now, here's the key point. Sonograms are great in a very targeted area. They're great when they're looking at a very specific place. They are horrible as just a general screen. In other words, if, if I wanted to screen somebody for uh, breast cancer with a sonogram, you'd bring them in and you'd be going all, and if anybody's had a sonogram knows that you move the little thing on the breast and the screen looks like like a Rorschach test. I mean, it's just, unless you know exactly what you're looking at and it's, it's in real time movement, it's motion. So the long and the short of it is sonogram is horrible as a screen for any kind of precancer, breast cancer type things. It's wonderful in that specific incidence to identify whether something's cystic or solid, 
but it is miserable, and that's why it's not used as a generalized screening test. Mammogram is still the gold standard. Now, as far as the radiation, uh, the amount of radiation exposure that you get from a mammogram is equivalent to about a tenth. Sorry, there's a big truck going by. I hope this doesn't destroy. The amount of radiation from a mammogram is about a tenth of a chest x-ray. A tenth of a chest x-ray. So there's been studies after studies after studies about does getting a mammogram cause cancer? Every, not just 98% of them, every study has shown there is no correlation between regular mammogram use and initiating a breast cancer. So hopefully that answers your, answers your question. Any other questions, guys? I've been doing this now for about 45 minutes, so we're, we're kind of coming to a close. Uh, I'm going to count down, and if there's no other questions, wow, I really like it out here. If you like, if you like this setting, give me a thumbs up, give me a heart. Let me know if you like that. Uh, it, it's really actually very pleasant out here tonight, and I, I hope this has been a nice change, nice background. I hope you've gotten intimate with my puppies back there. Again, just a quick reminder while I'm seeing if there's any other questions, just a quick reminder that Thursday, September 12th, about two weeks from now, we're going to have an open house for the Mona Lisa Touch Laser in our office. If you're having pain with intercourse, vaginal dryness, urinary problems, uh, anything related to thinning of those tissues in the menopause, it's a great tool. Come learn if it's for you. Come learn if it's appropriate for what issues you're having. Uh, it just it's just going to last a, a half hour, 45 minutes. Free refreshments. And we're also going to do a drawing for a free treatment. Oh, that's great. No, my neighbor just started up their truck with their muffler going. So I guess that's a sign that I've got to scoot out of here. But anyway, register today because we only have a limited number of spots. So if you're interested, go ahead and register before we have to close it out and start a waiting list. I'd love to see you there, talk to you about whether this is appropriate for you. Uh, register on the little, uh, I'll put another little link on the uh, announcement there. All right, uh, let's see. One last question here. Somebody asked about flu shots. What's my feeling about flu shots? Yes, I think they're wonderful. They're, are, they, are they super effective for everybody? No, absolutely not. Uh, do they cause certain reactions occasionally? Uh, yes, very, very rarely. But the benefits that you get, it's, it's classic benefit versus risk. The benefits that you get from potentially not only preventing it for yourself, but creating this herd immunity so it's less likely to, to affect other people around you, that greatly outweighs the minuscule, minuscule risk associated with the flu shot. Unfortunately, because the flu virus is a lot smarter than us, it mutates like crazy. So that's why you have to get a different one every year. And a lot of it's just prediction as to whether or not it's going to be effective for that year. But whenever you look at the benefits versus the risk, I think the benefits greatly outweigh the risk. Great question. Great question. Thank you so much. Great questions, guys. This has been so much fun. I hope this has been enjoyable. If, you, if this has been good for you, give me a thumbs up. Give me a heart. Let me know. that. Throw, throw me some love this way so I know that this is working for you. Uh, hopefully, this is a great way to get some additional information out and just have fun. And uh, now you can going off to dinner or happy hour or whatever whatever uh, is going to be available for you tonight. So, until next Thursday and and again, I'm open for suggestions, but until next Thursday, always remember, make healthy choices. See you next time. 
Thank you for listening to the Women's Online Wellness Podcast. To join the conversation, access show notes, and discover bonus content, join our private Facebook community by sending a request to Women's Online Wellness. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to hear more, just head over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. For questions about the podcast or to get more information, email Dr. Eaker at r-e-a-k-e-r at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, choose to be healthy. Thank you.